Support for today's episode comes from Maple Leaf Foods. We all have questions about the food we cook. Is it natural? Is it good for my family? What about the planet? Maple Leaf's answer is in the foods they're proud to provide with natural ingredients for Canadian families. There's a preface to this episode. I've spent more time on this story than any story I've worked on in my professional career. And it all comes down to one person, the person that this documentary portrait is about, Corey Snake. I first met Corey four years ago, in the fall before the pandemic. I planned to release his story a few months after our first meeting, as I usually do. But life got in the way, significantly. There was the pandemic, of course, but other major events happened in both of our lives. Throughout these past few years, Corey has continuously checked in. He has invited me to fish with him on many occasions and in all different seasons. You'll get a sense of that in these next episodes. And because of the time spent, I have most certainly blurred the lines of objectivity in this story. Corey has generously and patiently invited me into his life and shared his beautiful story. It is my great privilege to tell it with him. Thanks for continuing to listen. I know this story was worth the wait. Most episodes of Home Cooked start in a kitchen, but today I'm on the shores of Lake Kuchiching. I'm walking under a concrete bridge just outside of Aurelia, in rural Ontario, trying to find a national historic site. Above me is a four-lane regional highway with an A&W on one side and a Tim Hortons on the other. Most people go by and they have no clue. No one blinks, even, even boaters, they go right by it. The water under this bridge connects Lake Simcoe and Lake Kuchiching. It doesn't look like much down here. You could be under a highway bridge anywhere, really. And it takes me some effort to find the historic plaque. Under the water, you can't see it, but under the water are um, still the signs of how they used to trap the fish. I'm on the traditional territory of the Ojibwe of Rama, and the two voices you just heard are two of its members. Roughly right where I'm standing, for thousands of years, this place was a working outdoor kitchen. He began telling the story of how long our people had gone there fishing. In these narrows, just below the water's surface, among the marsh grasses and mud, lie remnants of an old site one that's older than the pyramids in Giza. When I finally find the plaque, it's kind of disappointing. It doesn't look like the kind of sign I was expecting for a national historic site that's over 5,000 years old. Hi, I'm Sarah Martin, and this is Home Cooked a podcast about cherished family recipes and why they get passed on. This episode is about a recipe that almost didn't get passed on. You can even say that there were policies put in place to prevent it from being passed on. But it's a recipe that did survive, against all odds, and mostly because three generations of a family were willing to break the law to source ingredients for it.
My name is Gnu in our language, which means Golden Eagle. My family comes from the Sturgeon Clan, and I am a member of Rama First Nation. I've gotten to know Cory Snake fairly well over the past four years, and his story has grown from where we originally started back before the pandemic. Part one of Cory's story, this episode, it's about the ingredients to his dad's recipe for fish cakes. Cory is part of a younger generation trying to reclaim and rebuild the fishing traditions that date back thousands of years here. I grew up on the water. My family have always fished using traditional methods and not so traditional methods. Cory has invited us to go spear fishing with him on Lake Kuchiching. His friend Derek is driving the boat. What we're doing tonight is something Cory has been doing his whole life. We're heading straight out into the middle of a pitch-dark lake in mid-October. It's chilly. One of my earliest memories was going down to the lake as a young boy and watching my grandfather and my older cousins going down to get smelts. And I remember being led down there in the dark, and I remember being scared of the dark. We had to wait for the exact right conditions to meet. Beauty night. The water is like glass. There's barely any wind and no moon. Something about nighttime <laughs> kind of feels <laughs> exciting. <laughs> My family was always known as, as fisher people in, in the community, so we've always been connected to the water. To the right is speed, and to the left is done. Kill switch is at the end. Cool. Yeah. So I'll be on the bow. So if I see a fish, like it'll be basically be going this fast. And if I see a fish, I'll tell you what direction. I'll say like one o'clock and I'll point. And then when I say drift, just put this into neutral and then it'll drift over the fish. So what I'm looking for is uh, reflections of the eyes off the fish. They would teach you how to tell different fish by, by the light of the flashlight. So pickerel, like their eyes glow and then, and then you know, also they have a white tip on their tail. So I'm just gonna make my way up. Cool. Front? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I'll put my spear together and how deep are we right now? What's that? <laughs> so who actually taught you to spearfish? Malt like a mixture of people. Like from older cousins to uncles to watching my grandfather go out. My mother was a great angler. She doesn't get out too much now, but growing up, we were always out on the water. Yeah, I love to fish. I've been fishing since I was a kid. I was brought up to fish, so was my family. And when did you first learn to fish? Oh, probably when I was about seven. And she loved it, so she instilled that within us. After I got a divorce, I was a single mom and no car and not a lot of money, so we had to find stuff to do, and that was outside. That's what we did, like for entertainment, for something to do. And even going out in the boat, they've been going out in the boat since they were little, both of my kids. That's Corey's mom, Cheryl. She owned and ran the only bait shop at Rama. Where we'd sell like leeches, minnows, and, and uh, worms to anglers, and we'd rent out fish huts, and we provided guiding services. So, so when I was a kid, they wouldn't let me go out with them. And they'd all come to my mother's house and they'd, they'd all coordinate and then they'd all go out in their boats. 
and I would want to go with them and they'd go at nighttime, but my mom would be like, no, no, you gotta go to bed, and I'm, come on, take me, take me. Nope, one day, one day. And then finally, when they're like, you can come now, I was so excited, <laughs> yeah, getting into the boat. I thought I was gonna get to spearfish, but they're just like, no, hop in. <laughs> and then they're like, sit and listen and watch. And uh, I did, but I learned so much from that because I watched them communicate. Yeah, it was a great thing to see because then you learn how to mimic it. You're like, okay, this is what I have to do in order to be successful. Corey learned by watching, and tonight it's Derek's turn. He's driving the boat, keeping one eye on the water and the other on Corey, who's scouring the surface for fish. There, nine o'clock. That's a pike. We went out on the lake and they just did their thing and told me to be quiet and watch and then they're like, your turn. And I was just so full of anxiety because I didn't want to screw up but impress them. I want to get a fish so bad to like prove myself because I'd, I'd been out in the boat with them a bunch of times but they were seeing if I would keep quiet and just listen and learn. So right now I am putting my spear together. So typically our spears are just one unit. I remember how heavy it was. I think I was like 10 when I first got to hold the spear and act actively like spearfish. Was it as big as this one? Yeah. <laughs> Can you just like put that in perspective? How tall are you? How tall is the spear? So I'm like basically six feet <laughs> and the spear's probably like 14 to 15 feet. But when with you were the, 10, you weren't six. cast iron. At the time, no, I wasn't. I wasn't the same, same size I'm now. I was probably like five foot five, like 120 pounds wet kind of thing. So it was, it was intimidating and then balancing on the front of the boat, plus trying to work the light. I didn't really realize it till I was older why we did everything at night. Like even from harvesting to our ceremonies, I had no clue until people were like, well, it was illegal and it still is. And I became more curious about it because I'd want to go even during the day and they'd be like, no, no. And then eventually explained why, but I had no clue at the time why we did everything at nighttime. When I first met Corey four years ago, a historic and controversial treaty had just been resettled in Ontario. Almost 100 years earlier, in 1923, Corey's community, an Ojibwe community, part of the Anishinaabeg Nation, signed the Williams Treaties. So it was pretty much like signing something with a gun to your head. There was a looming problem in Ontario. Roughly 13 million acres of prime land in southern Ontario, land stretching from Lake Ontario to Lake Nipissing, from Lake Huron to the Ottawa River, remained unceded territory. The land belonged to the Anishinaabeg Nation, and we're talking about a land area roughly equal in size to the country of Croatia or the state of West Virginia. This posed a big problem for the Canadian government because they had widely encouraged white settlement in the area. And settlers did what settlers do, they settled the land. The only thing is, they didn't own it. At that time, most of our people still didn't speak English. They were only speaking Anishinaabe so, so in 1923, that was still the case. They had no idea that that's what they were signing. The provincial and federal governments appointed a three-man commission. 
And even though the commission's report confirmed indigenous claims to the land, they brokered the new treaties. The Williams Treaties of 1923 were intended to resolve your long-standing claims. Instead, the conclusion of these treaties created continuing injustices, insufficient compensation, inadequate reserve lands, and the inability to freely exercise harvesting rights. That's former Federal Crown Indigenous Relations Minister Carolyn Bennett. She's reading the government apology from 2018. The Chippewa and Mississauga peoples had no legal representation at the treaty talks, and no negotiations preceded the signing of the Williams Treaties. Corey's great-grandfather signed the treaty. The interpreter for us, for our people, was assigned by the government because we're federal awards. Government officials dictated the terms, awarding a one-time payment of $25 to each band member, and the Ojibwe Anishinaabe people lost title to the lands in question. But what was so unusual about the Williams Treaties is how they broke standard treaty protocol, you could say, and added clauses to disallow indigenous hunting and fishing rights to off-reserve lands. From what I know, just from everything that's come to light now, is there was documents that shed light that the government purposely planned to strip all rights, and they did what was called the Blanket Clause Treaty, where they basically put terminology in there that where they could say it meant kind of anything they wanted it to mean. In 1923, the Crown could have and should have done better. The Crown's actions in negotiating and implementing these treaties did not respect your ancient and profound relationship with your traditional lands, and the Crown's interpretation of these treaties unfairly restricted your ability to harvest in your pre-Confederation treaty areas. So that's even in our language, that's what our word means for a Caucasian person, Shaganash, it comes from which is to say something but means something else. This led to many challenges, injustices, and indignities for members of your communities. Unable to fully exercise their treaty harvesting rights, some mothers and fathers were unable to provide for their families as they had before. The treaties meant that Corey's family could no longer fish freely on a lake his ancestors had been fishing on for over 5,000 years. Remember that National Historic Plaque? It celebrates the old wooden stakes arrested deep in the mud of this lake. Divers from the Government of Canada carbon dated them to be thousands of years old. They're known as the Minjikining fish weirs. I mean, we got our rights back with the Williams Treaty, but what we gave up was enormous. Cheryl Snake, Corey's mom, was completely unsatisfied with the resettlement of the treaties in 2018. I was totally against the Williams Treaty. I voted no. The day it got passed, I cried. You know, I did. It just bothered me that much. 
to have to give up 20 million acres of land and all the resources on it. Hey Derek, take us uh, that way. Thanks. Perfect. So then you can see the limestone formations. So they actually help illuminate. It's like there's a fish there, it's a little bass. Yeah. Today, Indigenous people are legally allowed to hunt, harvest, and fish freely on their former territory. And that's why we're out here tonight. So the town of Washago comes from Wasayago in our language, which has to do with how the limestones makes the water clear and reflective. Corey is standing in the bow, eyes fixed, delicately balancing his spear. Growing up doing this, like 15, 20 years ago, you'd see other people out in other boats, but you don't see that anymore. A lot of the old timers that do this are, are gone. We are the only boat on the water. And even though it's legal now, it feels like maybe we shouldn't be out here. There it goes. So, straight ahead, Derek, real slow. 11 o'clock, so a little bit left. Now drift, drift. I missed him, I think. <laughs> I took a stab. Here, I'll try to spot him again. Yeah, you don't have a lot of people going out and hunting and fishing anymore, you know, or even gathering stuff to eat. We were denied uh, access to the food uh, that we were growing up with. That's Mark Douglas. He's Corey's best friend's dad. He's an elder in Rama and a knowledge keeper. He was also a father figure to Corey. Well, the whole village was crying because they had no food. And so the army trucks came and in the back was war surplus canned goods. So we went down to the old school and loaded on my little hand sleigh uh, a box of canned meat. But eating the fry bread, because all we had was bacon grease, we didn't have butter or margarine, or we had no mayo, no ketchup, no mustard, we didn't have those things. So we just used bacon grease. Mark's describing making a sandwich as a kid. The only meat was spam, leftovers from the army. A whole generation had no access to traditional harvesting. Health-wise, you know, creates a lot more diseases the way people eat now, I think. Especially with the people that are diabetic, you know. If we went back to more traditional eating, we'd probably be a lot healthier. Our numbers in diabetes and such are through the roof in our village. They call them the five whites, like sugar, flour, all the bad foods. And our people adapted to it, like fry bread's huge in our communities now. It's all carb diets, pasta. We call it poor people's food, like quick to eat. So we all switched to pork and macaroni. I don't know why, but uh, I guess they're very addictive kinds of food. Uh, the sugar in them, especially macaroni. I love macaroni. God, I love it. I can never eat enough macaroni. I'll just keep eating it and eating and eating until I explode, I guess. When I was a kid, you'd hear the old people be like, oh, I miss tasting this. I miss tasting that. And they'd talk about, oh, I remember eating cattail soup. It's a great food. You can eat it raw. 
and you can turn it into an amazing soup because it's a it's a tuber because we switched from our foods to the newer foods and the, the journey back uh, we got kids that go ooh fish ooh <laughs> I don't know where they got that from but they've got that attitude but as so many others in Rama were dropping the traditional harvesting methods, Corey was picking it up, fast, absorbing everything he could. 11 o'clock, so a little bit left. Now drift, drift. There. Here, Sarah, take that. So Derek, right there, see? Hold on. So illuminate its tail for me so you don't get it in the eyes. In the boat, we're all holding our breath. Corey is standing on the aluminum bench of the boat, waiting, poised, ready to strike. So yeah, just stay on its tail. Okay, drift, drift, throw it in neutral. (laughs) Well, they're around, so that's cool. I'm not used to missing that much, but what can you do? It's been a while. Corey is an enthusiastic teacher. This is the first time I've ever speared in my life, and I'm actually only holding onto the flashlight, so I guess it's a lie to say that I'm actually fishing. But being around Corey, I get this feeling of confidence. And Corey actively shares what he learns. He's been teaching in schools both on reserve in Indigenous communities and at private schools with non-Indigenous kids. He takes at-risk youth out in the forest for land-based teaching workshops. He's been doing this for almost 20 years. Oh, I felt it too. I just felt that nick. You know what's funny is I just missed him because I felt my spear glance off the side of him. Whew, that got me a little bit shaky. It's been a bit since I've done this, so I'm like, ta-ta-ta. Maybe Corey is a bit shaky tonight, but he knows what he's doing. He's been doing this since he was a kid and became an expert as a teen. We're seeing lots, which is nice. I just got to get get one. <laughs> Stay tuned after this short break. It's time to catch a fish. And when Corey was a little kid, that required a lot of running from the law. This is where we normally host an ad from our sponsor, Maple Leaf Foods. And we talk about something like how Maple Leaf Foods is the world's first major carbon neutral food company or how they're Canada's largest provider of poultry raised without antibiotics. But we're not going to do that. Home Cooked is about food and family. And today in Canada, more and more families are struggling to access food. So today, we're going to use this ad spot to talk to Sarah Stern instead. I'm Sarah Stern, and I'm the Executive Director of the Maple Leaf Centre for Food Security. Sarah, tell me if you can, what does being food insecure in Canada look like? I think so often when people think of food insecurity, they think of the lines outside the food bank. And no one wants to be in that line. And I think when we talk to people and try to understand why are people who are food insecure not using a food bank, what is that barrier? Most people say it's not for me, it's for someone that's worse off. And so there's a bit of a a barrier there on who needs it. If you're walking around a city right now or even a community, you'll see the demographic of people in those lines are changing as they get longer. And when you speak to people at food banks, some of the biggest growing groups of people accessing food banks are those that are employed. People are having a hard time making ends meet. And the only piece of flexible income you really have is your food budget. 
And so that's what's getting pinched by everybody right now. And for some, it's meant having to turn to emergency food or the food bank to meet those needs. Thanks, Sarah. Now back to the show. Goes, there he is behind us. Uh, he's over there now. I <laughs> lost in the fog. That's a good size one. Yeah. He's like, I know what's up. I, 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 yeah, I felt that graze my brain. Yeah. <laughs> Corey Snake is taking us spear fishing. It's one of the first times he's been out on the water legally to harvest in this way since the Williams Treaties were resettled in 2018. I don't know, like, it almost felt like it was like an air pocket in the water line, but the water line's like fine. I mean the gas line, sorry. It's getting close to midnight. We haven't caught a fish yet. God. We're in some deep water in the middle of Lake Kuchiching. And uh, that everything's like the motor just died. Don't worry, we're not breaking down. Fingers crossed. This is a brand new engine, so it like shouldn't. Who knows how to swim good? Just kidding. Like funny, not funny, Corey. Oh, don't scare me like that. Yeah, like it's. I don't know why it's doing that. I should be feeling nervous out here. Or, but it sounds like there's air in the gas line. But somehow, I'm not. I'm sure Corey has been in much worse situations on this lake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, right on. We're, yeah, we're good. We're back in action. Here, sit here with us. That was weird. You don't think there's too much weight back here? No, it's actually good. Better having the bow out like that. It's actually how we're running more smooth. The waves are cutting better. Once it got dark where we knew people couldn't see us, that's when we'd start our activity. So with the communication, people would always say, like, be on lookout. You know, if you hear anything, say something. Like if you heard, like, a boat trying to sneak up or, you know, something of the sort, because it could be the MNR. The MNR, the Ministry of Natural Resources. These were the officials who would enforce the laws from the Williams Treaties. And the laws were serious. There's a number of fines that were in place. You could get fined per fish, and the fine was maximum $700 per fish. They could confiscate your vehicle, your boat, even your house. If you're doing it off someone's property that was private, even that person could lose their home. So there was all these different levels of persecution we could face. You might have to run from the cops. Like, I'm going to do this, but, but it was just, it was a point of pride. Like for us and our community, like, our language is on the verge of extinction. Our ceremonies are basically not around anymore. And it's all really we have left is the way we harvest. And we're barely clinging on. Oh, that fog's getting thicker. Dang. Oh, shit. Oh, re reverse, just a tad. <laughs> We're right over like a massive bass. I'm going to take a poke at it. Corey is standing back up on the bench, staring into the depths of the water, giving Derek directions. Uh, drift, neutral, 
and left, neutral and left. With the temperature dropping, there's some fog forming on the water's surface. It's making it a bit harder to spot the fish. Where'd he go? Dang, I just, he snuck right up. He's, oh, that's not good either. They're probably scared him. Where'd he go? Oh, still there. Uh, go straight, Derek. He's like right there. See him? Strike straight. Oh my God. How am I missing? <laughs> I'm still going as hard as I can. <sighs> I'm gonna have to get closer to their head, I guess. <laughs> oh, not my night tonight. Not my night tonight, right? You know, our history with the police being indigenous too, you know, we were always taught when you're young not to respect the police because of our history with the police and, and all that dynamic. That's when I asked Corey, what's the closest you ever came to getting caught? The closest I ever came to getting caught was me and two friends. We went spear fishing for pike at a place called Sucker Creek, which is just outside of the reserve. And we had 10 pike with us and that, that's all we wanted. But we were on the train track at the bridge, getting ready to load up. And then all of a sudden a car came from the left and one came from the right, like vehicle lights. So they were trying to pin us in. So somebody had obviously called the police on us or the MNR. So we were kind of trapped in and it's known to be muddy around there and it's pitch black. So we just ducked into this bush, like right beside the creek. And they came right down to the bridge in both vehicles and they met up and we could hear them talking, you know, we know where they're here, we, they're here somewhere, look in the bushes, da da da. And they turned on their uh, lights of their vehicles. It was two uh, police cars and they were looking in the forest for us, but we had pulled reeds over top of us, like uh, grass over and we were laying there with our fish because we didn't want to lose our fish, we didn't want to dump them. And we're laying there, laying there, and we're all laying right beside each other, and we're, where are those Indians? You know, you could hear the police saying, they were here, we know, we've seen their lights, yeah, 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 and you could hear their whole dialogue. And then one of them said, I'm gonna pull into the field, into the farmer's field. We started snickering because we know it's all muddy. So the cop car actually pulled in there and they got stuck. And then you could hear them just cursing. And we're still laying in the bush like 30 feet away at this point. And they're like, we're gonna have to call a tow truck. And we we're having a good little like quiet laugh to each other. And we were stuck there for about three hours laying in prone position. Before the tow truck came, another cruiser went in, like a police truck, I guess, like an SUV, came in and tried to pull the one out. And then he got stuck. And then there was two like police vehicles stuck in this field trying to catch these like three 12 year olds spearfishing. Like, it was, it was ridiculous when you think about it. But we eventually crawled out. We waded through the creek and we walked all the way back to Rama. It was a miserable walk home because we were soaking wet and tired because we were hoping to get home hours earlier because we had to stay up and still clean the fish. So we, we were tired, went to school the next day, very tired, but that was the closest I ever got to getting caught. Corey grew up taking these risks because his mom and the elders close to him knew how important it was to stay connected to their harvesting history and traditions. And if it meant breaking the law to catch a fish, they were going to break the law. They were a small group in the community, and they were determined to hold on. A lot of parents discouraged their children from going spearing and hunting 
And the reason why is because we didn't have rights and just that fear of getting in trouble, like running into the MNR officer and all the repercussions that were stacked against us. But my mother was different. Everyone knew Corey's mom because she owned and ran Snake Valley Bait and Tackle, the only bait shop in Rama. I did that for 11 years. Everything started changing, right? Once they put the limit on the perch, that cut off a lot of my customers from the United States, right? So it began to be not worth it anymore. So Cheryl fought the law. She was the first Indigenous woman to get a commercial license to net minnows. I got a lawyer and applied for the license, but what they gave me was a special license, not like anybody else's license, and I could only go and harvest minnows what the government then considered my treaty waters, which was not very much at the time because the Williams Treaty hadn't been settled yet, right? So then I went further since it was such a small area and said, okay, then I want me to be the only one to have a license to use these areas. No more non-natives coming in and to these areas. And I won that, which really made them mad. Sorry. Well, what are you saying, Corey? Yeah. The renegade? She's known as the renegade. <laughs> <laughs> Corey's mom, Cheryl, is a renegade and one of only a few elders who legally fought the injustices she saw happening to her community due to the Williams Treaties. She'd just say, like, really strong statements, like, it's who we are, you know, you're an Indian, it's what we do, it's, it's our way of life. She would say, like, don't ever let people dictate over you. And then growing up into that and being a kid, it was kind of like, it is part of who I am. And constantly having that being, like, my whole childhood up till adolescence and young adult to now, it's like, it's very inspiring. It's all for the next generation, that's all. That's why I do everything I do, I guess. The fog is breaking up over the limestone ledge. There, there, nine o'clock. That's a pike. We can see a bit more motion again under the water. So you try to sneak it down to get right above their head and then go for a quick strike. So if you just illuminate their tail, then you can still kind of gauge where you want to hit them in the head. There, right there. I'm hugging my belly to keep warm and holding my breath in the hopes that we still might catch a fish tonight. Yeah, left. Right in that beam, yep. Yeah. This is a big reason why I find it turns off a lot of young people because it does take time to learn this. Like it took me years to be able to spot fish out with my eyes correctly. It took years to actually know to have confidence in doing what I'm doing. There he is. Again, his tail. That's a good size. Okay, slow, slow, slow. Left, left, left. He's really camouflaged. Like, see the pattern? I got him. That's good size, eh? <laughs> and there it is. One giant pike. Caught the way Corey has been learning to fish ever since he was a child with his granddad.
I began this episode in 2018 and had to put it on hold because of the pandemic and other personal difficulties. I knew that when I was able to get back to work, this would be the story I would want to complete first. And Corey Snake was generous and patient, inviting me to Rama many times to learn different harvesting techniques over the years and seasons. When I was able to return to it, the story had grown. Time will do that. The first chapter, which you've just heard, is about the survival of critical ingredients and a way of life that was actively outlawed. It's about keeping hold of family traditions literally in the face of deliberate annihilation. When we return, we'll get into the recovery of traditional cooking methods and language. And then in the last part of Corey's story, we'll get cooking. When I first went to Rama to fish, I met Corey's dad, who gave him the fish cakes recipe to begin with. I intended to go back and spend more time with him. After all, he was supposed to cook with us. But that would be the only time I would meet Kenton Snake. We'll hear from Kenton in the next episode. And our cooking session in part three became a kind of homage to Corey's dad, who sadly died during the pandemic. Please tune in for the rest of Corey's story in the next two episodes of Home Cooked. Thank you for continuing to listen to Home Cooked. If you want to make Corey's dad's fish cakes, head over to homecookedpodcast.com to learn how. You'll also see images by portrait photographer Rita Leisner. This episode of Home Cooked was produced by Katie McGuire, Lisa Gabriel, Vanessa Conley, Sean Liliani, Mark Alster, Nicole Edwards, and me. Cameron McIver does sound design. Sean Liliani and Stefan Banchevich composed original music for this episode. Artist Charlotte Fisick created our downloadable recipe cards. Candice Craig does graphic and web design. Composers Dan Misha Goldman and Sean Brody wrote our theme music. Sean Liliani is video producer. Very special thanks to Corey Snape, Kijik Douglas, and Derek for their help in the field. Thanks for listening. Until next time. <laughs>